0: Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investment, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at NationsWell and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner, always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining.
1: If you're going to do something, you're going to do it right and you're going to do it big. And the idea is to, to electrify the entire country because it works, it fits, and it's good for everything.
0: Hey friends, there's a lot of talk about electric cars, but what about other vehicles like buses and trucks? Buses and trucks create 30% of emissions from the transportation sector, and so they need to be a priority. This episode focuses on school buses, It turns out that diesel school buses not only pollute the environment, but they cause real health problems for the kids who ride them. Fortunately, the shift to electric school buses has begun, and this episode features two people working hard to make it happen. Today, you'll hear from Duncan McIntyre and Tim Shannon. Tim is CEO of Highland Electric, a startup that helps school districts electrify their buses. Tim, meanwhile, is the transportation director for Twin Rivers Unified School District, He's actually known as the godfather of electric school buses. We talk about the importance of phasing out diesel buses, what it takes, where we're at in the transition, and what's coming. All right, hop on the bus and let's go. Tim, Duncan, welcome to Invested in Climate. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Where do I have you two calling in from today?
2: Good morning, Jason. Thanks for having us. I'm calling in from Beverly, Massachusetts, a small city
1: north of Boston.
0: Great. What about you, Tim?
1: I'm calling in from Sacramento, California.
0: Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you both being here. And Tim, I know it's quite early for you as well. So appreciate the early start. So we're here to talk about school buses. But before we dive into why buses are relevant to climate change and what you're doing about it, let's just find out who you guys are. Let's start with Duncan. Tell us a bit about the organization you're representing, your role, and how you came to focus on.
2: I'm part of a company called Highland Electric Fleets, and I've had a career in, in and around climate change, starting in renewable energy, in the finance side of renewable energy, and then ultimately started Highland almost five years ago after an obsession with electrifying municipal fleets overtook me. The The business that we're involved in here today is all about making it cheaper, and easier for cities and governments to electrify their fleets. If you look at the landscape, there's a ton of interest, growing demand, but it's typically too expensive to convert fleets. And it's complicated to sort out all the details and make them really reliable. So we provide financing and services to drive this technology transition. I act as the CEO. I sit on our board. I'm the company's founder, and it's without question the most rewarding business I've ever been a part of.
0: Duncan, tell us just quickly about the history and state of Highland. How long have you been around and what sort of progress have you made in terms of building the company?
2: Jason, we're almost five years old, so still relatively young. We are venture-backed. We've raised a little over $250 million. It may sound like a lot of money, but we're in a asset-intensive business. We've got close to 100 employees. We're in 17 states, and we're the largest buyer and operator of electric school buses anywhere in the country today. So we see a tremendous opportunity, a lot of demand in our market, and we're capitalized to invest, to continue to be the leader in the space.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Duncan. Tim, what about you?
1: I'm the director of facilities planning efficiency, and I've spent most of my world in the school district in transportation, which I'm still the director of that. I got into the school transportation during the recession. I used to be, uh, I used to run a very large photo lab in Sacramento. And I tell everybody I used to bleed Kodak yellow. Now I bleed school bus yellow. We started our adventure into electrification about seven years ago. I saw an opportunity to make a huge transition in school fleets because walking through the yard and smelling all that diesel was just atrocious and unhealthy. And then we said we launched the largest electric school bus fleet in the country at the time. We've been doing this for like seven years and... We, we now have like 58 electric school buses. That's pretty much what we've been doing. And we've made a big difference for kids and community and for the climate. Incredible. If I were introducing Tim, I would have described him as the godfather of electric school
2: busing.
0: I've heard he's been called that. And so Tim, is this an official name? And also, does it show your longevity and commitment? Or is it really attesting to some power that you hold over the sector?
1: No, it's a commitment. I am super committed. The name, I didn't really call myself that, but a lot of people call me that, but it's the push. If you're going to do something, you're going to do it right and you're going to do it big. And the idea is to electrify the entire country because it works, it fits, and it's good for everything.
0: All right, let's get into that. I think the obvious next question is to get grounded in what's happening today and why it needs to change and really to understand what the school bus situation in the United States looks like and what's wrong with it. Tim, do you want to continue with your train of thought there?
1: Yes, there's a couple things that needed to happen that are starting to happen. First of all, there's like 480,000 school buses in the country and they spew a lot of carbon out of their exhaust every day in, in cities and in communities, rural communities. And we need to transition to this new technology. Not only is it more efficient, it's reliable, and it is really the smartest thing to do if you start looking at the data.
2: I think Tim's exactly right. But part of your question there is around the landscape today. We do have an overwhelming majority of the school bus fleets in the country in the diesel format. Part of the reason is that's what fleets are familiar with and comfortable with. The diesel product has continued to evolve and become a fairly reliable platform. And it's also very affordable. The vehicles are aligned with the budgets, transportation budgets today. And I think the transition Tim is talking about is an important one and one that has kicked off in earnest, but it's going to take a decade for the mentality to shift across operators, getting them comfortable with the new tech, getting mechanics trained up on how to work on new tech, getting dispatchers familiar and comfortable with the range and the reliability of the vehicles. So we certainly have a lot of work to do as an industry, but thankfully folks like Tim are out there willing to tackle these challenges.
1: Yeah, it's going to take like a decade, but companies like Highland Fleets, is they're really going to make a difference because they're offering a turnkey solution. Nobody really wants to do what we did in Twin Rivers. It was a challenge all the way. It's manipulating through a dozen different grants. It's really working with everybody from the ground up, putting it together. And transportation departments and directors just really are going to struggle with that kind of a challenge unless there are people that can offer turnkey solutions from power to plug to bus. Those are the kind of things that need to happen to make this move much faster.
0: Let's get into some of the specifics of really what's wrong with busing today in the United States and how your solutions will improve it. And let's start by thinking and talking about the climate impacts. 95% of school buses in the United States today are diesel. Help us understand the climate impacts of those buses and how much electrifying them will really help.
2: When you think about a climate change impact, I would break it down into two buckets. The first bucket is the efficiency you gain in going from a combustion engine and going to an electric engine. It's just far more efficient. So you're just going to create propulsion more efficiently. The second bucket is truly all around the carbon content of the kilowatt hour compared to that of a diesel. Our school bus projects run in Colorado, in Illinois, in Canada, in Maryland, in Florida, in California, and it's a little different everywhere, but we see carbon improvement of anywhere from 50% to 90%. And those are the goalposts that frame our projects today. The last comment I would make, Jason, is we, as an industry, have a very unique ability to charge these fleets at times of peak renewable energy production. These fleets sit idle 92% of the hours in a year, which makes them very well suited not only as stationary batteries that can support the grid, but also as fleets that can charge inexpensively and in the cleanest possible way.
0: You both mentioned that there's many benefits of switching from diesel to electric buses, and this includes improving the health of its riders. Tell us some of what you know about the harmful effects of diesel buses on kids in the United States today.
1: The emissions on a diesel bus are just horrible. And when you sit in a diesel bus, you breathe in all those emissions, you know, because you got the windows open on a hot day. But really and truly, there's been quite a few studies out there that show that the kind of emissions that come out of vehicles increase the rate of of asthma and create breathing problems for kids and burning eyes and all of those things, which in turn, creates not that great of an environment to come to school. And what we've noticed in the electric bus arena is that they really enjoy the ride. It's a quiet ride and it's a clean air ride. But we have seen a drop in absenteeism, not only from the kids, but from the drivers themselves, because they it's a better ride. It's a cleaner ride. It eliminates those headaches that you would get towards the end of the day from the spewing diesel.
0: So it's clear that both for the health of our planets and the health of our children, we need to get rid of diesel buses. And so I guess the question is, is the solution here? Has electric bus technology matured enough that it's ready to scale? And how does their performance and overall cost compare to diesel buses?
2: The technology is here. Tim has proven that in Twin Rivers, 58 of their vehicles, which is a very meaningful percentage the There are other examples. We have a project in Montgomery County, Maryland, where we're putting 326 electric buses into their fleet. That's a little more than 25% of their fleet. So there's a commitment there to really transition to this technology. We will always see technology advancements in the transportation sector. Will we be on to hydrogen someday? What will the technology be 15, 20 years from now? It's impossible to know, but what we do know is battery electric is incredibly promising. The engines, the storage, everything about it is very simple, very few moving parts, and they're proving to be incredibly reliable. The fleets that have issues are typically issues because they haven't planned around charging or they haven't planned around implementation or their gaps in training. It's very rare that it's truly a problem with the technology. And so I think there's downstream work that has to happen. But from my perspective, we are well into the maturity and the reliability of battery electric transportation in a way that should drive the next 10 years of movement to
1: a clean mobility environment. It is true. It's there. We're using four different manufacturers of electric school buses. We plan to have 82 buses within the next probably 11 months, and that will be over 95% of our fleet. And we're not only running them just for home to school, but we're also running them for field trips taking advantage of the of the DC fast charging, midday charging. So the technology's there, the equipment's there and like Duncan said, it's just there needs to be more training in order to be able to run these fleets more efficiently on the ground knowing that it's really not the equipment that's got the problem, it's just the way that it's being applied.
0: So let's go deeper into that idea that it's not the equipment but rather the application. Tim, maybe you could walk us through what it takes for a school district to transition to electric buses.
1: Well, I will tell you that it takes a a heck of a lot of planning and it takes a huge team because it's a little different than just gas and go, as I say, with the diesel technology. It's the planning of the infrastructure. It's working with your electricity provider, which... In some areas, it's a little harder than others. We're pretty fortunate in Sacramento working with SMUD, but you have to plan all that, and then it takes time. We got our original eight electric buses, and we plugged them into 110 outlets, and it took four days to charge because we didn't have the infrastructure. And infrastructure and equipment takes sometimes eight to 12 months to put in, especially with supply chain. And then you have to work with your utilities because let's say you have this grandiose plan, but there's not enough power coming into your bus yard. So then there has to be upgrades made. Depending on your utility, that could take 11 to 24 months. And then if you want to do V to G and send power back to the grid, you're going to want to, it's going to take planning for that. So it's all that technology planning that has to happen in order to really run the bus efficiently. But in order to electrify a fleet, unless you're Highland Electric, it's going to take you a good 24 months. You heard it from Duncan. It's that turnkey solution. It's not all the components that we've had to worry about between negotiating power with the power company from determining when the best time is to charge it's completely a package deal where we had to go out and hustle up $38 million worth of grants in order to pay for what we've done. And that's really unheard of where Duncan's group comes in and says, hey, this is what we can do. This is the price you're going to pay. And it's less expensive to run than diesel.
0: Duncan, it sounds like this is a problem that you can help with. Maybe help explain how Highland helps because hearing from Tim, that sounds overwhelming. It sounds like it is a big headache, a big hassle, and perhaps really overwhelming for districts.
2: It's really what we set up the company to do is to break down some of these barriers that Tim's describing. I think the first barrier is that of cost. And maybe we can unpack that a little bit as well. But there are a number of different services and disciplines that are needed. Tim described working with the utility. That is true. There's a whole process in designing where the new power comes in, how you access it, how you run it to individual charging stations. And then there's a whole world of software hardware interoperability. It's really the communication and the happiness of the charger, the utility, the bus, all working together at the right times and the right quantities. We are stitching together all those pieces, the technology layers, the hardware, the software, the implementation. And then to take it a step further, we're actually paying for all of it. We're installing all of it. We're selecting the tech. And what a school gets is very different from equipment that they've selected. What they get is a performance-based Contract with a partner that's committed to them having a fully fueled electric school bus at 6 a.m. every single day for 12 years or 15 years, depending on the contract. And embedded in that is a warranty on all parts and services. If something breaks in year nine, we're obligated to replace it and pay for it. We're obligated to pay for the electricity that flows to the meter because the meter is one that we've installed and one that we're accountable for. The school gets something that feels more like a solar power purchase agreement. I'm sure your listeners know what that looks like. It's a fixed rate per kilowatt hour. In this case, it's a fixed rate per mile. We might earn $3 a mile, which will include a bus, all the charging equipment, all the fuel And that package is fully wrapped with a warranty. The bottom line is it is really intended to be all the equipment and services needed to keep the equipment running smoothly.
0: Yeah, let's get into the economics. So, Duncan, it sounds like what Highland is offering is electrification as a service. And that's really not a service that school districts have had to think about paying for in the past. And so, how are they affording and justifying the investment in electrification? I understand that there's some funding available in different locations. So perhaps you could touch upon how districts are accessing that funding and what's available. But walk us through the economics.
2: We found that schools have capital budgets to buy new buses that are appropriately sized to replace a diesel fleet on a periodic basis. And then they also have operating budgets to Pay their drivers, buy the fuel, pay for repair work. What they haven't done in the past is typically bundled those together into a single budget that is appropriate for purchasing a service. When you look at other areas, whether it's energy efficiency equipment, solar, rooftop solar is a good example. These are industries where the implementation and the technology it has the promise to deliver energy savings but you need a sophisticated set of teams to really make that happen we see the transportation industry going in a similar direction it's difficult for someone in tim's shoes having if go back 7 years having never done this before it's difficult for him to make the assumption that fuel is going to be half the price. Or repairs are going to be half the price. But companies like Highland can make that bet and use those downstream savings, operational savings, to justify more expensive equipment. So we piece together financing, tax credits, downstream operational savings, grants, which might come from the state or might come from the federal government, And then we match with our own capital. And it's the combination of those funding sources that really make it affordable and aligned with the budgets that exist today. There's a belief that you need huge grants to do electric school buses affordably. We would argue that you do not need huge grants. You need a little bit of grant funding. You need a little help today. But the vast majority of these projects can be funded out of future savings, tax credits, and other creative solutions.
0: And those grants, when they're needed, where are they coming from?
2: They're coming from a few pockets. The state of California has had a great program for many years that has specifically electric school bus grants. Other states have adopted similar programs. States like Colorado just rolled out greater than $100 million program just to support school bus electrification. But in addition to that, there are two major pockets of funding that have, I think, helped to create interest in the technology. One of them is the clean school bus program through the Federal Infrastructure Act. And that's a $5 billion grant that is structured today as cash on the hood for electric school buses. The second program is part of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is actually a tax credit. There's a very limited understanding about the power of tax credits and how they can drive down the cost. They ended up being the thing that mattered in solar. Most people don't really understand how they work but they know that it's just a lot cheaper to sign a PPA. And you know, with the IRA, there's a lot of power there. I think the key takeaway is communities need to just take a look. They really need to just frame up the difference between buying on their own and what a public-private partnership looks like. Because when they actually compare those two things, they all see very cleanly and easily that it's just much cheaper if someone else can monetize the tax credits.
0: Let's talk about the progress that you've seen in recent years. It sounds like the technology has come a long way, and the overall process is easier than it's been, thanks to available funding and groups like Highland. So let's talk about adoption. Where are we in terms of the transition to electric buses?
2: It's a good question. It is ticking up meaningfully right now. If you go back a year or two years ago, the electric school bus projects that you would read about were all grants with the exception maybe of what Tim was doing and has been doing at Twin Rivers. And these grants I describe were all tiny, one bus, two bus. Think about them more as pilot projects. In the last 12 months, there's been a meaningful turning of the tides. There are many more projects out there that are more geared around entire fleet transitions where more of the new buses they buy will be electric in the future than not electric. I mentioned Montgomery County in Maryland. That's a great example. We are serving both rural and urban districts in states like Illinois, where half or over half of their fleet will be converted to electric over the course of a number of years. When you stack it up and look at the whole market The electric school bus space still represents a very small portion in terms of overall penetration. But if you think about 36,000 new school buses roll off of a production line every year into school districts, I would bet more than 10% of those orders will be electric this year. And more than 20% of those orders will be electric next year. So that's very different than 1% or 2% from 2022.
1: That's very true. And what, Duncan, I don't know if you knew this, but as of April of this year, you cannot receive a diesel school bus in California. If you wanted to order one now, you might as well just order an electric because you can't purchase a diesel one here and, and receive it in time. So not a single new diesel school bus will be put on the road or use school bus we put on the road that isn't already here. So the transition is going to happen. And in New York, that is
2: now 2027. And in Maryland, it's 2025. And more and more states are adopting policy that is pretty strict. It is a very clear indicator to the market that the diesel vehicles are going to be phased out at some point in time.
0: So to accelerate that transition, what else needs to happen? It sounds like state policies and incentives can help. It sounds like educating districts about the overall process and partners that they can have to make it easier is also a step. But really, to accelerate, what else do you think needs to happen?
2: I would flag one key area, which is the interactions with utilities and the energy industry. Utility companies – Tim framed it up very well earlier. They are 12 months, 18 months, 24 months out from providing new service. The way they're doing that needs to be reenvisioned for an EV fleet world. The amount of power electric fleets need is substantial. Our depot in Bethesda, Maryland has five megawatts of service. To the utility company, that looks like five large hospitals. So it's a significant amount of power. What the utility companies need to do is create new rate tariffs, working closely with the EV industry in order to really incentivize charging at the times when there's abundant power on the system and supporting the grid by not charging during the times when the grid is strained. That, from our perspective at Highland, would make a huge difference. The utility space is notoriously slow moving. They don't innovate quickly, but this is an area where we think the utility industry needs to consider innovating a little faster.
1: Duncan is really right about that. He's right on. We had to negotiate with our utility provider in that we charge at the optimum time and we receive a rate of about 12 cents a kilowatt hour which is significantly lower than most places. And that's what makes it work for us. And that's what has to happen all over, is that partnership between utility and school bus. With that kind of a partnership, it's a very workable solution, and it will also help accelerate the adoption.
0: With talking about utilities, it's a good moment to circle back to the potential for vehicle-to-grid and the potential for buses to provide a, a resilient, stable source of electricity, Tell us about how that potential is playing out. Are we already seeing examples of it and how beneficial can it actually be?
2: Jason, it's meaningful. It's really meaningful, especially in certain markets where there's a need for more power in the afternoons during certain seasons. I'll give you a few examples. We are operating in Massachusetts and Vermont in an environment where the utility relies on our school bus fleets to help shift the peak usage. In Massachusetts, it's every weekday in July and August for two hours late afternoon. It's when the solar is shutting down and the demand for air conditioning and businesses to be operating is still very high. We earn over 25% of our revenue in Massachusetts from providing that activity. And what that means is we can offer lower prices to the schools and make it even more affordable for them to convert their fleets to electric. The industry has a ways to go to unlock and really roll out all the programs that will help the industry realize the value that I just described. But for early adopters like National Grid in Massachusetts or Green Mountain Power in Vermont, it's integrated into their plans. And they rely on us and we rely on them. So we're very optimistic about the future of Vehicle to Grid.
0: Tim Duncan, you've made a really compelling case that school buses matter and that electrifying them quickly is important. So what can listeners do? Is there a role for community members to be involved in the process? And how else can people hearing this podcast be helpful?
1: I really think that with the community being involved with their utility and giving feedback, they can help accelerate and be a part of what the utility does. One of the things that we are doing in SMUD is that we're working with not only vehicle-to-grid and tying in, but uh, working with them to do TV and battery to building to grid with the school bus, and then creating a rate structure that any community that's a part of it, especially the disadvantaged community, they'll receive some credit on their electric bill, more stabilization. So that's something new that we're working with our utility, but I think it's really important that that communities interact with the utilities and say, hey, we want to do this. We want to be a part of this.
2: Community has an opportunity to raise the awareness of a few key decision makers that are involved in this decision in any community. One is school board members. There's usually one or two school board members that are very passionate about this transition and they can be powerful advocates. The second would be a superintendent. I would write a letter to your superintendent and request that they take a deeper dive into this space. And lastly, transportation directors. I think it's good for for them to hear from community members and really sort of listen to the interest level coming out of the community. So I would suggest those are a couple ways communities
1: can get involved.
0: Tim, Duncan, thank you both so much for being here today. Really enjoyed learning from you, and we'll be cheering you on from the sidelines.
1: Thank you very much, Jason.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.